Uh, you know, we're in the series called Questioning Christianity. And last week we kicked off the series with the question, is anyone out there? And the question was really, does God exist? You know, is there a God? And I tried to give some argumentation for the existence of God. Um, and then upon that foundation, I want to build the second question. And that is, is Jesus God? And I want to read a, a quote by a well-known Christian philosopher. He said this, he said, Christ, the Christian religion stands or falls with the person of Jesus Christ. Judaism could survive without Moses, Buddhism without Buddha, Islam without Muhammad, but Christianity could not survive without Christ. And I think we'd all agree that Jesus Christ is one of the most influential people in the history of the world. And the question is, how did a, a, a Jewish man born 2,000 or so years ago who never wrote a book and was uh, crucified, you know, was sentenced to death, to a criminal's death, how did he become the most influential person who has ever lived? And I think when you dig down into it, you realize what makes Jesus unique is who he claimed to be and what he did. And it's interesting when you, uh, when you look at an interview, for example, that um, the, the lead singer of U2, some of you know this, this popular rock group, U2, some of you may not, but uh, his name is Bono, the lead singer, and he was asked by an interviewer, the interviewer says, then what or who was Jesus as far as you're concerned? And Bono said, I don't think you're, all, you're, you're let off easily by saying he was a great thinker or a great philosopher. Because he actually, he went around saying he was the Messiah. That's why he was crucified. He was crucified because he said he was the Son of God. So either, in my view, he was the Son of God or he was nuts. Forget rock and roll messianic complexes, I mean Charlie Manson type delirium. And I find it hard to accept that whole millions and millions of lives, half the earth, for 2,000 years have been touched, have felt their lives touched and inspired by some nutter. I just, I don't believe it. And then the interviewer goes on to ask, Therefore it follows that you believe He was divine, and arose physically from the dead, and you pray to the risen Jesus. And Bono says, yes. And he, gets, he makes a point here, a few points. One is, uh, there's over 7 billion people in the, on the planet, and over 2 billion of them would claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. So 30% of the population of the planet would say they're Christians. And Bono then goes into a, a, an argument or a response that is reminiscent of C.S. Lewis's response in mere Christianity where he uh, challenges us as we consider the question, who was Jesus? This is what C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to prevent here anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or 
else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us and he did not intend to. And so this morning, as we consider the question, who is Jesus? Who was Jesus? I think you have basically four options. You could say that he is a liar, or he was a liar, or he was a lunatic, which is what Lewis and Bono were getting at, or he was a legend, or he was, in fact, the Lord. And so I want to just walk through each of these briefly with you. The first one, uh, the fact that someone may hold that Jesus is a liar may be true. Actually, I've never encountered anyone that said, you know, Ron, Jesus was a liar. I haven't found anybody that that holds that point of view, but I guess it's possible that someone could hold to the position that Jesus, He wasn't the Son of God. He just went around pretending to be in order to maybe gather notoriety or uh, accomplish some purpose of His. But that's not a very popular position. And I think it holds very little credibility. Second position is he's a lunatic. You know, he's a schizophrenic. Jesus really thought he was the Son of God, but he really wasn't. And the challenge with this view is that when you read the Gospels and the accounts of Jesus, he doesn't look like a lunatic. He seems to be of right sound mind in all he he does. And so the idea that the church could have been birthed out of that millions and millions of people coming out of uh, this belief system over someone who's a lunatic seems very unlikely. And so I want to spend most of our time dealing with these last two positions. One is that this this Jesus that we know about is merely a legend. And the last position is that uh, Jesus is, in fact, the Lord. And so one popular position is that Jesus, the, the Jesus we know from the Bible, is a legend. And it goes like this. Many years after Jesus died, his followers constructed um, legendary accounts of who Jesus was and what Jesus said and what he did. And so at some point after Jesus' death, you had the, the biblical writers make up stories that make Jesus look like he's the Messiah or he's the Son of God. And so they did this to maybe create a community or a religion or maybe to gain power or there could be several motivations, perhaps, of why this was done. And this idea has been floating around for a, a long time, uh, but it's been popularized in recent days uh, by, for example, a book several years ago that was released called The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. And his whole book was based on this idea that the Jesus that you know from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, is a legendary figure. If we, in order to get to the real Jesus, we have to kind of peel through all these made-up stories and try to figure out who Jesus really was. And so that makes for a fascinating novel and maybe an action-packed movie, but it's actually based on bad historical research. Because you see, the only way legends can be constructed about a person or an event is if enough time has elapsed between the, the person's life or the event and the writing itself. In other words, you, you cannot construct a legend within the time frame 
of the life of the eyewitnesses of the, of the event or the person. For example, um, if Jesus you know, lived in the first part of the first century, then the Gospels and the writings that would have been written about Him making His, you know, um, his life seem miraculous, supernatural, would have been written, these Gospels would need to be written into the second century in order to be able to construct some type of legendary figure such as Jesus. But the problem is, uh, with the legend position, is that all the biblical documents, the, the Gospels as well as all the New Testament letters, are dated within the first century. And one author put it this way, he says, the canonical Gospels were written at the very most 40 to 60 years after Jesus' death. Paul's letters, written just 15 to 25 years after the death of Jesus, provide an outline of all the events of Jesus' life found in the Gospels, His miracles, claims, crucifixion, and resurrection. And so the significance of the dating of the first century, of these first century writings, the Gospels and Paul's letters, for example, uh, gives credibility to the fact that these Gospels are historical accounts of what actually happened that are not uh, created uh, they haven't created some legendary figure that we know today called Jesus. And I want to give you an illustration. Of, of, this may make more sense to you. You know, imagine you have a daughter who's taking a history class in school. And you, you know, you peer over at her homework and you realize she's reading history, her history book. And you realize she's studying the 1940s. So you pick up her history book and you begin to read about all these events that um, punctuated the 1940s. And then you read this interesting fact that um, there, were, there were millions of Jews in Germany during the 1940s that, that left Germany and moved to different parts of uh, um, you know, different countries around Germany. But there was no mention in the history book about the Nazis and their harsh treatment of the Jews. And there was no mention of the death camps in Germany and how the Nazis killed several million Jews. I mean, you'd be reading this and you would think, how can you talk about the 1940s in Germany and the Jewish people and not deal with the Holocaust? It's as if the writer is trying to say it didn't happen. And so you'd go to the history teacher and say, what kind of class are you teaching here? Who wrote this book? I mean, you're trying to say something didn't happen when clearly it did. Even though the Holocaust was 70 years ago. But we all know you can't just make up stories like that because there are people still alive today that went through the Holocaust. And there are children of people who survived the death camps that can tell you what really happened. And so it would be impossible for us to construct some, some um, fantastic tale about what happened to millions of Jews other than the fact that they were killed under the reign of the Nazis. My point is that if you're going to construct a legend, you have to write about the person or the event after everyone has died that witnessed that event. Or they're going to confront you on the fact that what you've wrote about is just, is just false. And so, my point is, you may say, well, Ron, what does this have to do with, is Jesus God? And my point is, is that if the Gospels are reliable then we have to wrestle with the claims of Christ. Which is where we get the idea that Jesus is in fact the Lord. Now let me give you several 
examples of why I believe the Gospels are, credi- are credible, why they are accurate historical narratives about the life of Jesus. The first one is that they were, they were written down during the life of the eyewitnesses. For example, Mark chapter 15, verse 21 is a great example of this. Jesus is on His way to His crucifixion and uh, He stumbles under the weight of the cross. And so you may remember that they, they call out a man from the crowd, Simon of Cyrene, to carry the cross. But what's interesting is this is what Mark says about Simon of Cyrene. Mark 15, 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And you may be wondering, why did he put in there the father of Alexander and Rufus? What does that have to do with anything? You know, Mark's saying Jesus is going to his crucifixion. They grab Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross. And by the way, he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. Well, this is Mark's version of the, a footnote. You know, if you were to do a research paper today, you put a footnote and it tell the reader where you gathered your information from. Well, this was Mark's version of the footnote. He's saying, Simon of Cyrene carried Jesus' cross. By the way, Simon of Cyrene is the father of Alexander and Rufus. In other words, if you want to hear about this, go talk to Alexander and Rufus. They were still alive when Mark wrote his gospel. Another example is 1 Corinthians 15, 1-6. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, and he says in verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So Paul's saying to the Corinthians, you know, this is the gospel I've, I've preached to you. Jesus lived, He died, He rose again. He appeared to more than 500 people. Some of those people have died, but some of them are still alive. In other words, if you want to know about this, just ask these people that saw Him. Again, these, these Gospels, the writings of Paul and Peter and the like, were written during the time, during the life of the eyewitnesses. Another uh, point that I think lends credibility to the Gospels uh, has to do with its content. For example, if you were to construct a legend about Jesus and the leaders of the early church, let's take Peter, for example. And I think everyone would agree Peter is a very influential uh, leader in the early church. And if these writings were written later on in a way that was meant to construct a legend about who Jesus was, then when you think about how the writer would portray Peter in his writings, how would he portray one of the most significant leaders of the early church? Well, you would think if if you were writing it, you would probably portray him in a good light. That, hey, Peter's a good, good leader, you know, because most likely he was leading or maybe he had died when these gospels were written, if they were written in a kind of this legendary format. And so you would think you would put Peter and the other leadership of the church in a, in a good light. But this is what Mark does in Mark 14. 
when Jesus is under trial for, for, uh, before his crucifixion, Jesus uh, is under trial. Peter's in the courtyard. And one of the servant girls of the high priest, and this is in Mark 14, 66 through 72. One of the servant girls of the high priest comes up to Peter and says, Peter, um, you, you look familiar. You, aren't you one of those who follow Jesus? And Jesus says, I don't know what you're talking about. And then she keeps persisting. And this is what, this is what Peter does in verse 71. Just listen to what he does. He says, But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. So now, if you are creating a legend about Jesus and the leadership of the church, it just doesn't seem to make sense that you would portray the most, probably the most influential leader of the early church, Peter, as someone who actually denies Jesus and evokes a curse upon himself, swearing he did not know Jesus. The point is, because of the even embarrassing portrayal of some of the leadership of the church, it lends itself to being an authentic account of what actually happened. Another additional point that lends credibility to the gospel writer, to the gospels is that the gospels tell us that the first people that witnessed the resurrection of Jesus, the empty tomb, were women. And you may say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, unlike today, in the first century, a woman's testimony was not permissible in the court of law. Women were just devalued at that time, and their testimony was not admissible in the court of law. And so you would think, okay, if you're writing about the resurrection of Jesus, why would you have women be the first ones to witness the resurrection? Why would you not have maybe some reputable men of the community witnessing the resurrection? That would give a little more credibility, at least in that day, uh, to the truthfulness of it. Well, the argument is the reason they put the women as the ones who witnessed the resurrection is because that's what happened. And so all the Gospels simply speak to that. You know, these women were the ones who witnessed the empty tomb. And so when you take all of these arguments, as well as many others that we just don't have time to dig into, you can see that the Gospels are a reliable form of history. And so, therefore, you have to deal with Jesus' claims. If they're accurate, you have to deal with, with what Jesus claims, Jesus claims about himself. For example, one, one scholar said it this way when you look at the claims of Christ. And, and this may be something that you may not have thought about, but it's certainly true. And that is the most striking feature of the teaching of Jesus is that he was constantly talking about himself. Whereas you have, you know, Muhammad, you have Moses, you have these other religious leaders pointing to God and the truth of God and the way to God, you have Jesus talking about himself. For example, in John 6, 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. See, this is what really sets Jesus apart from the other religious leaders of the world. John 8, 12. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. And he who follows, follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And in John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
And this is why C.S. Lewis said you can't look to Jesus and say, oh, he was a great moral teacher. Because Jesus is saying, I am not, I know the truth, but I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. In other words, he's claiming to be the doorway to eternal life. And so when you look at him and say, well, he's a great moral teacher, you say, well, he's claiming to be the one who grants eternal life. In other places in the Gospels, he's claiming to be the one who judges the world. And so you can't just simply say, well, Jesus, he taught some good things. No, he's claiming much more than that. He's claiming to be the Messiah. He's claiming to be the Son of God. And he even claims equality with the Father. John chapter 10. And one thing I want you to pay attention to as you read the Gospels, it's really interesting to note how the listeners respond to Jesus. For example, in John 10, verses 30 through 33, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And it's just important to note how these listeners are responding to Jesus. They, they realize, you know, Jesus, it's not just simply what you're teaching or what you're doing. It's that you're making yourself equal to God. That's why we want to stone you. And that's why He was ultimately crucified. So you see Jesus' claims about Himself. There's I Am statements in John. He claims equality with the Father. And also He claims to forgive sins. For example, in Mark chapter 2, uh, when Jesus saw their faith, the men who brought the paralytic to Him, He says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And those around Jesus are looking on, hearing what He's saying, and they say, Who can forgive sin but God alone? Which makes perfect sense, right? Because if I, let's say I, um, I went up to Nathaniel, I took his cello, went outside and smashed it against the, the concrete and it busted into a million pieces. And then, let's say Trellin then comes up to me and says, I forgive you for smashing Nathaniel's cello. You would think, what right does she have to speak for Nathaniel? You know, it's his cello. Why is she offering forgiveness? Well, the point is, Jesus is saying, I forgive you, not because he's just artificially, you know, giving you a feel-good statement, but he's saying, I forgive you because Jesus is, is the representation of God himself. When you sin, you sin against God, and only God's the one that can grant forgiveness. And so when Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven, He is claiming to be deity. Also, for example, Matthew 25, and in other places in the Gospel, Jesus claims to be the judge of the world. That He will come back and judge the world. Another interesting point about Jesus is the way that He can cast out demons, that He has power over the spiritual realm. Luke eleven twenty says this. He says, Jesus says, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of, the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so you see the power that Jesus had over the spiritual realm as well as the miracles He performed and the power He had over the physical realm were clearly signs of the kingdom of God and signs of the power of God within Him. So in conclusion, I just want to share one other passage in John chapter 20. 
uh, verses 24 through 29. I'll just sum it up for you here. But this is after the resurrection. Jesus had appeared to his disciples. And they're telling Thomas about this, that Jesus appeared to us. And Thomas says, you know, I just can't believe it unless I put my finger in his pierced hands and side. Then many days later, Jesus appears again to his disciples and to Thomas. And he tells Thomas, you know, put your hand right here in my piercings. And then Thomas cries out something I think is very significant. He says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus goes on to say, how blessed are those who will believe who have not yet seen him. And what's interesting about this account in John 20 is that Jesus does not rebuke Thomas's worship. He simply rebukes his unbelief, but he doesn't rebuke his worship. And the only way worship can be rightly attributed to Christ is if Christ is in fact God. Now, I don't know uh, kind of where you are on your spiritual journey. Many of you have embraced Christ as God, as the Son of God, and you worship Him as Lord. Some of you may be on a spiritual journey still, and you're still needing some, uh, some evidence, so to speak, or I'm not sure what you may need uh, for Jesus to be Lord of your life. But based on what Jesus taught and what He did, I believe Jesus is divine. I believe He's the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and worthy of our worship. But we're still left with this question for those of you who, who have not embraced Christ as Lord. And we're left with the question, who is Jesus? And I want to leave you with C.S. Lewis's challenge once again when he said, you must make the choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a good or great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Let's pray. God, we come to you, and we want to be open. We want to be teachable, and we want to embrace what is true. And Lord, we know many in this room believe the truth that Jesus is Lord. That He is divine. He is Your Son. And that through Him, You have accomplished our salvation. You have accomplished the forgiveness of our sin. And it will be through His coming again that You will renew all things. And You will put things right the way they ought to be. But now in the meantime, You give us the opportunity to respond to who Jesus is. And I pray for each person here as they explore that question. And each of us answers that question for ourselves. Lord, would you give us what we need to place our faith in you? By your Holy Spirit, would you work in our hearts to embrace Jesus as Lord? And thereby receive forgiveness for our sin and eternal life with you. And now I pray, Lord, for those who do know You, that we would seek to make You known in this city. And those who do not know You, God, would You continue to draw them to Yourself. And that is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.